Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Really excited to have a, a very special guest in his first ever OnDeck uh, appearance, uh, Charles Hudson. Uh, Charles is the uh, founder of Precursor, uh, which is a uh, world-class pre-seed firm. Uh, previously was at uh, SoftTech, now Uncorked, and um, has done a lot of you know entrepreneurial and venture-related uh, acts over his career, and is uh, one of the best in the biz if you are looking to raise uh, pre-seed can't think of a better person than, than Charles. We, we've co-invested on a bunch of stuff together and look forward to doing uh, more, both, uh, both professionally, one of the best in the biz, but also, also personally. So, so we're very like, uh, lucky to, to have him today. Uh, Charles, uh, thank you for taking the time to be here with us. Oh, thanks for having me. And I was just scrolling through. It's nice to see a handful of people that I recognize from prior lives. So thanks for having me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. So I uh, want to cover a, uh, a bunch of topics and we'll also be taking, uh, taking qu- questions uh, that Cyril will be uh, helping, me, helping me address. Uh, first thing I want to talk to you about, Charles, is um, really the idea formation phase and the yeah. uh, evaluating markets. And, and uh, you, know, you have it from an investor perspective, but you also talk to a ton of founders who, are, who they just left their company. They're thinking about what they want to do next. How do you sort of advise them? What are the frameworks that you help them think about? Or how do you think about uh, picking startup ideas? It's a really interesting question because we're a generalist firm. So for those of you who don't know, you know, we'll do 20 to 25 investments per year in a normal year. Predominantly pre-seed, and I, this whole nomenclature thing is confusing to me. But I think if we draw the line, if you're raising a million bucks or less, you're in the pre-seed bucket. More than that, you're in the seed bucket, regardless of where your company is in terms of progress and stage. It just simplifies things. And I would say a lot of the time, I need people who can understand a market and explain to me like what what's the inflection point or what's the transition point that's happening in their market. And we have a bunch of little handy frameworks at Precursor that I'm happy to share. One of the big ones is we're looking for people that have a, a unique insight to the problem that they're trying to solve. And the analogy we always use uh, internally is the freeway off-ramp. And you know, if everybody's trying to get off at the same freeway exit at the same time, you get a traffic jam. And oftentimes what happens is, you know, we'll meet 3,000 companies in a normal year, rough, rough, roughly. And you can meet 10 companies in the same category working on the same problem. And if I meet 10 companies in the same category with the same business model, with the same customer acquisition strategy and the same target customer, I'm like, well, that's, too many little companies trying to find their way into the same lane. So I tend not to like companies where I feel like the insights are fairly obvious and where I think there's going to be a lot of competition because I think a lot of competition on the same vector as you as a really early stage company, it's bad for everybody, not just for you, it's bad for all of your competitors too. And so I was looking at our portfolio and a lot of the companies we end up investing in are actually business model innovations. And they tend to be people who take a market where the default product is expensive and hard to use. And they, they take a product and they like, I'll give you like a tangible example. We invested in a company that helps nonprofits raise money online. And their big insight is that everybody who's tried to sell software and nonprofits, it's kind of the worst of all worlds. It's a long sales cycle and a small ACV. And they said, we figured out a way to make a really good product for free that nonprofits can use, even given their limited technical capabilities. And by the way, our big insight is not only do they not raise money online because they make so much money from their in-person events, they also don't think like online marketers. So if you give them a tool with no instructions, they won't actually be more successful. You have to both give them the tool and the instructions. So they built a product that's kind of like a mix of Stripe meets MailChimp for nonprofits. Yeah. And so a lot of times the companies I get most excited about, because I don't think we're particularly deep in any market, like the last 10 companies I've invested in, two insurance technology companies, a consumer video play, a digital health company. They're like all over the map. And what I'm looking for is people who can explain to me why their market's in transition and why their structural advantages. So a lot of times we talk to people about bottoms up market sizing and why I think it's so important. And one of the things is, I think if you can tell me a good story about 
a specific customer who would buy your product for a specific set of circumstances. And again, oftentimes it comes down to business model because a lot of times what we find is there's a huge chunk of a given market that's really well served at a particular price point and a particular level of product complexity. And oftentimes just adjacent to that are a lot of dissatisfied or unserved customers. And so I found we get most excited about about products where I think there's a chance for market expansion where the founder's insight is so profound that rather than fighting over the crop of people that already use the product, they're going to actually expand the universe of people who would be customers or think of themselves as users of the product. So it's hard, but like as a generalist, I feel like the insight has to be pretty obvious for us to get it. And it means that if someone's got some really nuanced thing about some small sector of the market, we probably will pass not because they're not right, but it just won't tick the box for us. Yeah. Let, let, dump some of your, more of your frameworks on us in terms of elements that you look for that make markets uh, attractive or unattractive on the unattractive side. You mentioned if it's, if it's too crowded, of course, sometimes people say, well, that's validation. It, you know, there's, there's opportunity there. And on the attractive side, you mentioned, you know, it's at an inflection point or yeah. there's an opportunity to expand the market. And I think there's two kinds of crowded markets. I think there's crowded markets where everybody's doing the exact same thing. Those to me are like really unattractive unless you're doing something very different. Like for example, we were early investors in the athletic and there were a lot of people doing sports journalism online, but almost all of them were doing free ad supported. And their hypothesis was like, hey, a product that had a subscription element to it could have a very different growth trajectory. It would end up being a really different product. And I guess at the root of all of this, and maybe I should just be more explicit. We think there's a very tight linkage between go-to-market strategy and the product that you build. And so we're always looking for, is there a product to be built here that by building it for that audience in that way, unlock something that would be difficult for other people um, to compete with. And when we've been able to do that, we've been really fortunate. And then sometimes that ends up being a horizontal theme. Like we have six companies that are all what I would describe as next generation benefits companies that sell through the employer to provide some value to the end user, the employee. And that's just a, that's like a go-to-market model. We found that if you have a product that's relatively inexpensive in many cases for the company to try, the benefits brokers turns out have this persistent need to show new stuff to their customers and free useful things are easy to show to their customer in a way that free expensive things are a bit more of a sell. And so once we learn that that sort of go to market product, you know, a product that's free for the company to try delivers value to their employees and monetizes in some indirect way. Um, we found that those products can grow really quickly through that sales channel. So I'm not afraid of crowded markets as long as the startup is trying something different than other people are doing. I also am not afraid of unpopular markets. Like we did a restaurant tech investment in the middle of COVID mostly because the trends that this founder had identified about restaurant labor and the scarcity of it at this moment and potentially going forward, the trends he identified, I thought were really good. And I said, I don't think a lot of VCs are scouring the market looking for restaurant tech companies. If he's right, the odds are very high that he's going to have almost no competitors because most people think this is actually a bad idea. So a lot of times we're looking for like good ideas that look like bad ideas on the surface. Yeah. And I don't know, I just have this real deep allergy to big top-down market assessments. They just don't do anything for me. I would much rather hear a bottoms-up user story about who the customer is, what they're doing today, why what they're doing today doesn't work, and why your product will better serve them. I'd probably say half the time we say no to a company, it's because I don't believe that for their market and for their customer that the incremental improvement that they're offering is enough to break the status quo. Yeah. And many times the status quo is not a technology product. It's just doing nothing. Yeah. And is there a, a way to make sure you do bottoms up super well or, uh, or a common mistake that some founders make when they're, when they're doing that sort of not bottoms up analysis? I think the biggest mistake I see in bottoms up is a company that's starting off with a really clear focus on mid market that tells me in 18 months, they're going to have an enterprise product too. I'm like, well, you, Probably won't. If you're successful at mid-market, 18 months later, you will still be going after mid-market because like, that's like an evergreen, gigantic pool of customers to go after. And if you've conquered them all in 18 months, either you've kind of given up too soon 
or the, the pool of users wasn't deep enough. And so the thing I like about bottoms up is in most cases, in almost all problems that I see software companies solve, there is an incumbent solution. Sometimes it's pen and paper. Sometimes it's a clunky green scheme. Sometimes it's it's a hodgepodge of a couple of products that people have smashed together to get the job done. But there's almost always an alternative or the customer's coping with the problem in some way. And the thing I like about bottoms up market stuff is I can usually tell whether the founder has done enough work because they can usually tell me this is the range of solutions that our customer prospects are dealing with. Like we have a company that's in the purchasing card space and they're just like, you know, people, he's like, look, our biggest competitor is one company having one purchase card and just handing it out and passing it around. Like that is like a workable way around this. We think what we're doing is better and here's the reasons why it's better. And I think when you get to the, the brass tacks of like, what is the customer doing today? It makes the sort of acid test of, is this better? easy because you can say the customer used to do x y and z thing our product was launched we gave it to them and now they stopped doing x y and z thing yeah two variations of this question the first one is people talk about the keith or boy approach um which is you know find a huge space like real estate or healthcare and just build sort of like a a full stack horizontal solution you know i think he has his formulas like low nps vertically integrate Mm -hmm. and then there's the peter thiel approach which is find a uh a niche dominate that niche and, and expand that niche over time. Do you favor a different school of thought, uh, one of those, or can both work, or what, how do you think about it? I think you have to be realistic about where you are as a founder. Yeah. Like there's a class of founder who could just go raise $100 million to go build something full stack and vertical. Yeah. The problem with that approach, I think, like Keith can do it, right? Because he's yeah. Keith. Yeah. I think there's lots of founders where that's not available to them, not because they're not talented, but just because it's unlikely that an investor is going to offer that to them. Yeah. Most of the money we've made or I've made as an investor has been a niche thing that we thought was like kind of big turned out to be way bigger than we thought. Right. So I am a much bigger fan of like find something that you can dominate that has good to decent tailwinds behind it. Yeah. And the market will pull you forward. And if you get it right, you'll actually grow the total addressable market as you know, by the solution that you bring to market. I think the problem with like big obvious markets is that like they're generally big and obvious to everybody. So if you have a fundraising or capital advantage where you can get access to more money more quickly, more cheaply on better terms with less friction, then you can, you can build Oscar, you can build a firm, like you can build those kinds of companies. Uh, To me, it's like predicated on your access to capital. I don't know that you can build inexpensive, smaller versions of those products up front. Right. And it's kind of not worth it. Like it's not worth it to do open door unless you can go raise a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. What, what's the right way of thinking about market structure and, and what market structures do you prefer? And God, how, prefer how do you think about God, that? This is like my favorite question in the world. So thank you for asking it, Eric. Yeah. The other thing that the reason I like bottoms up is a lot of times market structure really matters. And it's probably the thing I spend the most time trying to convince founders to think more about is the classic, Oh, the market is really, is this big? Like I'll just give you like an example of the, you probably roll your eyes, but this happens a lot. People will say search advertising is a gigantic market. I'm like, yes, dominated by two gigantic, enormous quasi monopolistic companies. So what? Like it's huge, but it's just not accessible to you unless you have some really differentiated approach that would be hard for them to counter. So the fact that the market is big isn't as important as the fact that it's concentrated. Like I've met with a handful of um, geospatial information companies lately, because that seems to be a thing again. And I keep telling them, they're like, oh, well, Esri is like this really old piece of technology. Everyone hates it. I'm like, yeah, but it's incredibly sticky as a product. And like, they've been very resistant to startup competition. Very few people have been able to chip away at what they do. And there's a reason why, and it's, it's buyer behavior. So if you don't understand buyer behavior, it's very hard to chip away. So a lot of times these market structure conversations to me end up being another way for me to figure out like how much thought has the founder put into the go-to-market strategy and how they're going to win. And um, I get it. You're building software. Like my product is better. Why would somebody else want to stick with this really clunky, non-cloud-based, on-prem weird thing? Because they already have it. And somebody approved the budget and like change is hard. 
And so we spend a lot of time on market structure and understanding a couple of things. How, frag, how fragmented is the market? And also how segmented is the market? It's one thing if it's fragmented and up and down the stack, everybody's using different things. Oftentimes it turns out that markets are fragmented maybe in the middle and segmented at the top, which is something we find a lot in enterprise software. Like, oh, the biggest companies are using Microsoft Dynamics or Salesforce. And the middle of the market is using a thousand different CRM products. So I think all of this stuff matters because I don't know how you build a good go-to-market strategy if you don't understand market structure, segmentation, buyer behavior, how sticky existing products are and why. These are all things I think that go into to being effective. Yeah. And can you, um, can we take it even further of what are the implications for the, for the, for what founders should do dependent on the different answers, i.e. if it's very fragmented? Oh, yeah. So I think very fragmented. I think you have to understand why. And so for some of the markets we see that are very fragmented, it's because every customer has a slightly different workflow or business process and no one can build a product that's sufficiently compelling to capture all of them. I would say this sort of like run your SMB from your pocket space, like, you know, run your barbershop or whatever on your phone is I think a classic version of this. It's a super fragmented market because no one's been able, maybe Booker and MindBody have come the closest. No one's built a really great universal generic product for all businesses. So you end up with a bunch of vertical solutions. And so if you rolled it up, it looks like a huge market. But oftentimes these really fragmented markets are not one market, it's like a market of markets. And your ability to go from one market to the next is fairly limited. And it's important to understand like the nature of that fragmentation. And I'd say the flip side is at enterprise, sometimes at the enterprise, it's just, it's just concentrated and segmented. People are like, well, we use Dynamics not because it's the best product, but because we only buy Microsoft products as an enterprise because they all work together. I don't know how you sell against that. Like that's, that's a pretty tough equation versus we use this product because we think it's actually the best. And so I find oftentimes in concentrated markets, it's very easy to underestimate the persistence of the incumbent. Yeah. And so I think we push really hard on concentrated markets to make sure what is it about the incumbent and the best way to beat them is to like compete with them on terms that they won't compete with you on. So if their product is really expensive and very pro servy, if you have a free, easy to use, relatively inexpensive product, it's very hard for them to like turn the whole organization to compete with you. They'll like dismiss what you're doing and then they'll criticize what you're doing and then they'll launch a crappy version of it. Yeah. Oh, someone asked about the difference between fragmented and segmented. To me, fragmented just means you've got a lot of different companies with no real rhyme or reason over who chooses what. Like I would say mid-market CRM is fragmented. Some people use Zoho. Some people use Affinity. Some people, people choose a product and you end up with a lot of players, but there's not necessarily a unifying theme around who chooses what. Segmented is like, hey, if you're above, if you're a big company, it's a Microsoft shop, you probably use Dynamics. If you're a big company that needs an on-prem solution, you probably use SAP, CRM. And if you're a big company that wants to be hip and likes Mark Benioff, you use Salesforce. And it's segmented based on some sort of user, some sort of consumer characteristics or some consumer behavior versus feeling kind of more random. I'd say e- outside of MailChimp, sending email, non-transactional email is pretty fragmented. There's way more players out there than I ever realized. Is the answer you're looking for that you, 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 you would prefer something that is currently fragmented but can become winner-take-all or something that has a winner-take-all dynamic but is not yet a monopoly? Or, or It depends. I think we're probably less monopoly-oriented than most VC firms are. Like People are like, what's the mode? I'm like, some businesses like having a really good product yeah. and being great at customer service and execution is actually enough to keep you competitive. Yeah. And so I think this fixation with moats sometimes causes entrepreneurs to invest in activities that actually look like moats, but aren't moats. And so yeah. like if your product doesn't have net network effects and the net and your customer doesn't want them trying to engineer them in and build them. I don't know that that's a good use of your time. It'd make your deck sound better, yeah. but it, it might not be true. Um, so we, we try to focus more on like, what's like, What's what are you using as your competitive wedge as a company as opposed to things like moats? Yeah. Are, are there certain things that you'd like to see what a market looks like at scale if the market is? Yeah. So we always say like, 
we have to be able to tell ourselves a story about how this company gets to $100 million in revenue in a reasonable time. And like, it's intentionally vague. It's usually five to 10 years. And if you can get to $100 million in revenue, you've got a pretty viable business. Yeah. And I, I use that as like a rough, other people have higher numbers. I know some of my SaaS friends are like, 100 is not enough. It's got to be 200. To me, 100 is big enough. If you, and it, it's more like if you can't tell a story about how you get to 100, it might not be a big exit IPO scale company. It still could be very interesting. And sometimes people say, oh, well, based on our assumptions around margins and LTV, like the business can't get that big. I'm like, okay, well, what happens if we relax some of those assumptions? And sometimes even if you relax them all the way to the outer edge of what you believe, it still doesn't make sense. And it's probably not something we would fund. doesn't mean you shouldn't work on it, but we probably wouldn't fund it. Let's talk more about how you think about inflection points or any frameworks you have around, you know, there are technology inflection points, there are regulatory inflection points, there are, you know, consumer behavior inflection points, there are probably others I'm not mentioning. What are your frameworks around how to think about that? Um, to be honest, sometimes as an investor, you just get lucky. Yeah. And the world, like I can tell you, we have some companies in our portfolio that are levered to distance learning or virtual education. Nobody cared about those companies pre-COVID. There was like no inflection. They would go pitch, particularly higher ed, they would go pitch higher ed and they would just say, yeah, I know I probably need this virtual classroom product, but look around the school. All the students have, they're like rear ends in seats in an auditorium. Like this feels very esoteric. And now the, now that company is growing like crazy. So sometimes, honestly, like you have the long-term trend, right? And then something happens that gives you an inflection point. I can tell you for a long time, I'd say probably even up to the last few years, a lot of my friends who did casual VC consumer investing would say, well, consumers won't pay for stuff. I was like, of course they will. They pay for music. They pay for video. They pay for lots. Oh, consumer won't pay. And so there was this sort of like, there was a period of time in the internet where people didn't pay for stuff online for consumer service. They got it for free or they stole it. I think people have become accustomed to paying, particularly for media products. So I meet people who, who have these tropes that say, oh, the consumer won't pay. I'm like, well, then you've not been paying attention for the last five years. That it was an inflection point that allowed products like Spotify and others, I think, to get a foothold. Or it would have been hard to get mass adoption of consumer pay subscription services previously. Sometimes, honestly, it's legislative or legal things happen in the ecosystem that require people to start doing business differently. I suspect coming out of COVID, there's going to be a bunch of businesses that get accelerated because particularly in telehealth and telemedicine, some of these arbitrary state level restrictions are going to go away because people are going to realize they're more overhead than they're worth. So understanding what's changing, but like the cloud has been this like slow moving transition or digital transformation has been this slow moving thing that's been hitting different industries kind of at different times with different levels of urgency. Yeah. And so there's got it to me in general for a start, there's got to be something that's, that's happening, but like, I still get surprised. Like, I remember when I saw the first pitch for Stripe, I was like, oh, it doesn't seem like that big of a problem. Developers can use the PayPal API. There's a, you just play it wrong. Like e-commerce took off and like, it turns out it's a bigger problem than we thought. And there were more people building stuff online. So I think sometimes it's obvious what the inflection point is. And sometimes it's, it's just more subtle. It's the accumulation of a bunch of changes in consumer behavior that finally enable you. To do, like I think there's a, it's not surprising that all of these sort of gig economy sort of shared services models blossomed together. Yeah. I think once people started seeing that people were willing to do certain things on their phone with strangers, they just kept pushing the envelope to see what other things you could get away with. Earlier in this conversation, you mentioned you look at uh, companies that have structural uh, advantages or, or structural mm-hmm. advantages relative to a specific market. Uh, can you uh, uh, just some more back, background on what you mean there, what that looks like? I mean, yeah. So one of the big things we always think about is if you're successful as a startup, there's almost no secrets in Silicon Valley. Someone's going to hear how well you're doing, either a competitor or some other startup. And is there something you're really good at doing that other people find difficult? So I'll give you like, to me, the canonical examples. We probably invest in more SMB businesses than most. Most VCs are like, I hate SMB businesses, too much churn. They're too hard to build, customer acquisition, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but if you can get good at those things, you'll win. Like you'll win and you'll have relatively few competitors because most VCs don't think that that's a workable model. And so we've done pretty well with companies that, you know, they come and say, we're going we're gonna to dominate SMB. We understand that 
churn and customer acquisition are really important skills to get right. We're not going to be able to do this with sales. So we have to get very, very, very good at online customer acquisition and low cost and low cost support. So I think every strategy sort of spits out a set of things that if you're going to succeed at serving SMBs, you have to be able to acquire and retain them at reasonable rates. You have to be able to service them without having them call you on the phone or without having a salesperson reach out. And if you can do that, you'll probably win. And so that's what I would describe as a structural advantage. Like, hey, we are really good at servicing and keeping and retaining happy customers predominantly through online chat and email support. Self-service, whoever just said self-service SaaS. That, that to me is a structural advantage. If you can do that well, it's very hard to do. And so most people won't even fund the experiment of somebody trying to do it because nine times out of 10, it doesn't work. And then the 10th time you get MailChimp. And so I just sort of feel like if you can find it, and one thing I think that helps that precursor is it's a single GP firm. So I don't really have to convince anybody else that some of these crazy experiments are a good idea. Now, sometimes a smart partner would tell me this is too crazy of an experiment to run. There's literally no reason why you should do this. It doesn't happen, which means I can do things that are high risk, but high reward. Like I'll give you a really tangible example. I don't think this company has announced yet, but it's fine. There's probably been a billion dollars invested in freight matching marketplaces for like long haul trucking. We invested in a company that's in doing the same thing, but they decided, Hey, the problem is most truckers don't have a daily problem with long haul trucking or finding these loads. Most times you're busy. So you're never going to be able to engage the person. It's sort of like selling a car. You got to re you got to be top of mind at the moment. They want to do the transaction. They said, well, there's also another problem, which is that Google Maps and Waze don't do a great job of taking into account the needs of truckers. So we're going to build a navigation app that truckers use every day. And we think if we can get them to use our navigation app every day, we can pretty easily surface loads and other things that are of interest to them because we've solved the daily active use case. I was like, huh, that's like a totally different way to approach the problem of building a freight marketplace. Instead of like building the marketplace and then figuring out how do you keep people coming back, build a product that has natural daily active usage that sort of, if you think about it, what do you want to know with the freight marketplace? Where are you? Where are you going? And how much space do you have available to pick up extra freight? I had never thought about solving the problem that way. And so I tried to help the founder fundraiser and everyone's like, oh, there's Convoy and Trans, there's all these companies. And I'm like, yeah, but like, it's not, it's not, it's not a flywheel for them. They're not growing so fast given the money that they've raised that I'm concerned about competing with them, even though it appears to be a relatively crowded market on the surface. Yeah. And so that founder's done like pretty well. And there's a handful of people that are like working on that model. And I suspect the people that are working on the daily active use case model is probably better. They're probably better suited to capture eyeballs and attention than the folks I think who are just purely building the marketplace. And that's one of those like kind of non, one of those sort of non-obvious things that like I learned just by talking to them. And there's probably two or three people that are going after that approach as opposed to the like build the marketplace first. But that was one where I was like, oh, like if you get this right, like you've solved the hard part, which is daily active usage. Yeah. Um, how do you think about market timing? You know, as you're saying, it's uh, being too early is as yep. bad as being too late. How do you, especially when you think about emerging markets, uh, frontier stuff, how, what's your framework there? Boy, well, I've lost a lot of money getting market timing wrong. Like yeah. we got the timing and we continue to get the timing on VR wrong. That's kind of a bummer. But it happens. It's a little easier for us at Precede. Generally speaking, we're funding people for 12 to 18 months of runway. That's sort of what they have. So I have to believe that something really good for that company is going to happen inside of the next one to two years. Longer than that, we probably won't be able to finance them to get there. Much shorter than that, there's always the risk that we might be too late. And so a lot of times I always ask myself, what is it about this moment right now that makes this a good idea. And oftentimes, like, because the the window is so tight for us, we're wrong. Like it takes, like it takes, like we were wrong on VR and AR both, if I'm honest. Like we were more optimistic that 
third-party AR would become a bigger thing. And I would just say, you know, Snapchat is, most of the AR market seems to be Snapchat and Facebook and owned and operated stuff that they have. And look, we were just wrong about sort of how that market would play out and the timing of it. And the nice thing for us is because we invest early in relatively small checks, being wrong isn't, isn't fatal. We're going to lose our money, but it's not going to tank the fund. And we're not so levered to any one theme that like, if that theme is off schedule, that the whole fund is at risk. Yeah. You, you mentioned a uh, business model is really important to you or innovations in business model. What are the right frameworks for thinking about business models that are truly innovative versus ones that, that aren't as much or, or mistakes that people make, or just how should founders be thinking about that? It's a good question. I like subscription models as long as it's aligned with consumer behavior. I definitely see some companies where I look at the model. I'm like, well, the customer is only going to use this a couple times a year. This subscription seems to be like more suited to the needs of the company than the needs of the customer. And I always get nervous when I see business models where I'm like, this feels like it's in service of what the company wants in terms of like smooth annual ARR or whatever it might be, as opposed to like how the customer actually thinks about consuming the service. So I always try to figure out like, well, what's the consumption pattern? And how does the consumer think about value? And is the business model that the founders outline, does it seem consistent and fair on that front? And sometimes I definitely meet companies who are like, we want people to pay for this all the time, like, but they're only going to use it once. They use it once a year and they think about it as a once year episodic problem. And I get it that it's not. Like I met someone who tried to pitch me on a business that was like moving as a service, which was like, oh, you know, like people move around a lot. You can pay a subscription and we'll move you. I was like, but most people don't think about moving that way. They think about moving as a discrete thing that you do. Even if you do it a lot, it's a discrete thing that you do. And like, I get it. You want to extend your LTV and you want to have a lot of relationship with the customer. I just think this is going to be something they're going to try to find a way to get around because it's not consistent. And I think oftentimes when we find leakage or cheating on a business model, it's usually because the model that the company's outlined doesn't line up well with how the customer thinks about value. Really, I think people overestimate that in marketplaces like there's a lot of marketplaces in our portfolio where the customer could easily cheat and they don't because like the pricing is fair and the friction is low and the, and like the gains to cheating just sort of don't feel worth it. But like, that's something that we know from observation and VCs are like, people are going to cheat. They're going to rob. Eh, now you have a fair take rate and you solve real problems for both sides of the marketplace. I find most people are generally pretty good actors. Yeah. What's the right way of thinking about margins? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> this is a hard question. Step one is like, understand them. And I, I say that like with all honesty, sometimes people will show me margins and I'm like, well, that's, that's not what I think of as, as your margin. That's your, that's your gross profit. And like, we got a bunch of other stuff we've got to factor in here. I would just say if the margins of your business are insanely high, you should expect competitors and you should expect price-based competition. And if your margins are too low, there better be a big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow in terms of users and usage. So you, you better be doing something like payments where like the GMV volume based approach can get really, 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 really large. And that taking a small amount of it um, can really pay off. But I, I would say like, I probably spend an average hour pitch five minutes just making sure I understand how that company calculates and describes its own margin because it's remarkably not consistent. Yeah. So, you know, in some businesses, people pitch me, I just say, I can't even envision a world where this business ever has, this is particularly for e-commerce companies, relatively high CAC relative to LTV, or you need a lot of orders for payback. And I'm like, I just don't see how this could possibly work. Like your take is too low and customers will have to stick with you for way too long just to get to break even, let alone to become profitable. Earlier, you were mentioning that you've made, you know, uh, a bunch of your money in spaces that weren't yet huge or obvious, but then became so uh, over time. Of of course, a lot of spaces that are small, you know, end up staying small too. So how do you sort of recommend telling the difference or what criteria are you looking for to really distinguish the company or the markets that that will grow over time? And and Um, part of that question is, how do you recommend founders sort of pick their niche within the markets? Yeah. Yeah. So... This is tough because in a couple of cases, the market, like probably my single best investment was in a 
games advertising network company. And it just turned out mobile games were about a hundred times bigger than we thought they would be from a revenue standpoint with free to play. And like, they were a big chunk of it. And so like they won. And that was a market that we thought was like big, but not as big as it became and, and globally big. So we were, we were fortunate that the upside was much larger than we thought. I will tell you this. I have infinite patience for vertical software plays in like niche markets. Like we have one in hospitality. We have one in art. I have almost infinite patience for those companies to like figure it out because oftentimes you don't have 50 venture back companies breathing down your neck. And oftentimes like for those products, winning the customer is a trust building experience because these are oftentimes not segments where customers are used to buying software or used to buying software from, from new companies. And so I think as long as the company is making progress, oftentimes the sales and marketing expenditure is lower. You can do things that don't scale offline with your own customers. You can become an expert. So we have some companies that have been working three or four years on vertical market software product, and they're just chipping away at all the objections that those customers have. And um, I think there's no rush for those companies to kind of get to the finish line. But it, but it is frustrating. I have a couple other companies where I'm just, I'm convinced that like their niche is small. And there's kind of nothing they can do about it other than keep at it if they enjoy the problem or pivot to something else. So some of the people here, just going back to the VRA things, are experimenting in, in, in that space and crypto and others are sort of frontier stuff. Yeah. Um, is there a criteria by which you think um, they should think about like, you know, now versus two years from now or three years? Like, is it, you know, a, te- yeah. a user excitement or engagement, even if it's limited or what's... Uh, yeah, I, I think the hardest thing with Frontier Tech is it goes through these cycles of enthusiasm and where everybody wants... I remember every VC fund 18 months ago wanted to have a crypto fund as like part of their... But now everyone's a crypto? I don't never heard of it. And so you just have to know that like when you're on a Frontier area, when it's ascendant, you should like make as much hay as you can, especially in terms of fundraising, whatever it is. But know that for a lot of these front areas, you will end up in a period of deep despair where people, where it goes really out of favor. And so like, don't let investor enthusiasm or pessimism overly influence what you're doing. So my, what I tell a lot of people for these frontier things is these are oftentimes five-year projects minimum. So you have to pick a problem that you're willing to work on for sort of five years, knowing that it's going to be up and down. And then what I'm always asked people to do once you get inside of these problems is like, well, what's inhibiting growth? And like for VR, it was cost for a while. And then it was cost came down and like the headset experience wasn't great. Now the headset experience is pretty good, but they can't manufacture enough of them (laughs) to keep up with demand. And so the audience is still small. And so I would say like your job is in these frontiers is like, once you get, once you make the commitment to the company, you've got to be really honest with yourself about like what's holding back growth in our market. Whereas for AR, it feels more like it's distribution. It's like, how do you get customers to care and use these experiences on a consistent enough basis that you can build the business around them? If you're not Snapchat or Facebook with a large built-in audience. You know, the the Dropbox story is sort of famous for, I think Steve Jobs said like it's a feature or something, you know, it won't be a big company. Oh yeah. I worked at Google at the time. We were working on Platypus, Google Drive, and we we're like, Dropbox, whatever. Yeah. No one's going to uh, use that product. <laughs> what is the criteria by which someone to determine whether something is just a feature versus something that can really you know, take off and be an independent big company? I honestly don't know. If I'm totally honest, I don't, I don't know. Because I've been on both sides of it. I've had companies in our portfolio that felt kind of like features that somebody else should have built. Because you know what you can never predict? Like you can always say this company should build this thing. That doesn't mean that they will. Or when they build it, it doesn't mean that they'll build it well. So there are lots of times to this point where I will invest in a company where I'm like, I bet you the company that could compete with them is going to put one of their weaker teams on this product. Because it's not core and it's not critical and it's not obviously a good idea. So like why? Like to me, it's like crazy that like, TikTok exists. Yeah. I mean, yes, a billion dollars in marketing spend will help. Yeah. But you had all of these gig- gigantic companies in mobile video, Facebook, YouTube, 
and still Instagram and still like TikTok found a way to kind of like emerge from that primordial soup with obviously with good financial backing and like stand out. You're kind of like, how does that like in a category that was like overrun with large successful companies, like how does that happen? You would have said, Oh, mobile video is like just a, just a feature. And I'm consistently surprised by the number of times that companies sneak up on companies that could have competed with them, could have snuffed them out earlier and just never really got around to it because it wasn't that important. And then by the time you realize that the thing is actually working, it's, it's kind of too late. Yeah. Do you, do you have a framework for thinking about, you know, vertical versus horizontal uh, solutions, you know, when, when either preferences or. I think horizontal is just, those products are hard. I mean, like you win, like if you do, if you do like, if you can move Visco or Instagram, like they're two really different audiences, right? Horizontal is just so hard yeah. because you have to make so many people happy. Right. Without compromising the product. It's just so But like the prize for winning horizontal is enormous. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just massive. And so I think there's some markets where like, like for example, in music, I think being horizontal is kind of the most interesting thing to do because that's where the, the fat part of the bad is. There's some other markets, like especially in B2B, there's some markets where vertical's fine. Like it's a big, you can build a big enough business. You don't have to worry about solving all problems for all people. Yeah, totally. What, what about, um, you mentioned you really think about go to market as you evaluate markets. The differences or any, any frameworks you learn, the difference between go to market and consumer versus go to market and enterprise. Yeah, so... I find people who've never done enterprise before really struggle with the pacing of enterprise deals. And like, I'm always, we've done it with mixed results. I'm always hesitant to fund a company and enterprise that doesn't have somebody either on the team or on the table with their advisors who sold enterprise software, because in a 12 month sales cycle, you don't know nine months in, you could be on the verge of breaking through or you could be nowhere with the customer. And this is the problem with these long sales cycles. Like it takes long to get the information, whether you're successful or whether you're failing. So I tend to look for enterprise people or people who at least have an appreciation for how hard enterprise selling is. I'm consumer. My big question is like, what are you going to do other than spend money on ads? And there has to be a compelling answer and a compelling strategy there beyond. We're going to take all of the money and spend it all on ads that just, that doesn't work for me. doesn't mean it can't be successful. It's just not something that I tend to gravitate toward. And sometimes it's community. Sometimes it's offline. Sometimes it's content. There's a lot of different ways to do it. But uh, I just think the days of like pure tech, payback, arbitrage, ways of financing consumer businesses. I don't think most investors are as interested in those as they used to be. Yeah. We're, we're, we're sitting here with, you know, uh, 94 uh, entrepreneurs or future entrepreneurs. What, um, do you have a sort of request for startups, uh, whether it, is there are certain spaces you're particularly uh, excited about that you'd like to see, you know, uh, more people build and, and, and pitch you? It's a good question. Most of the things I get excited about were things I had zero idea even existed yeah. before I heard about them. <laughs> like I just invested in this DevOps product that like I had no idea even existed, but the way the founder explained to me, I was like, wow, that's super compelling. Um, we did a baby formula company because I thought the founders like pitch on like why this formula needed to exist. It was really exciting. And like, I do lots of sectors. Like we have a bunch of women's health companies. I don't know that much about women's health. I just think it's an interesting category. So I would say in general, I think investors are not as good at picking ideas as founders are. So we generally say, like, if you have something that you're excited about that you think is, is cool, I'd love to hear about it. But I, I, tell all, I tell my LPs all the time, we're picking among the pool of people who've already decided what it is that they want to do. Yeah. And oftentimes I find they find things that are w- way more interesting than, than I would ever think. Yeah. What, what would you say or what are some of the markets that you've uh, – or one of the markets that you've explored the most? Is it, is it healthcare? Is it education? Is it – Marketplaces or marketplaces are probably the one that we've spent the most relative to other people. It's probably the one where we've spent the most amount of time. Yeah. And I've, I, most marketplaces are, 
that's another business where you just have to be really patient. I tell all of these, all of our marketplaces look the same. They're flat for a really long time. Then they start to take off and then they rock it. And you're like, what happened in that knee of the curve? Yeah. It's a thousand little things that they got right along the way that were process improvements, ops improvements, customer acquisition improvements. And then at some point the thing just starts to work and it's hard to forecast when it's going to happen. Yeah. What do you think about uh, people trying to take on uh, global markets who are perhaps U.S. Um, founders? Um, do you have do you have any founders who do that or, or people who do that well? What, what are they doing? We have a lot of so I have this thesis on global. The one area where I probably do have a thesis, if I'm honest, is global fintech. Yeah, we have fintech companies in our portfolio all around the globe, but usually they're solving a local problem. So we have two in Latin America that are focused on very LATAM specific fintech HR tech problems. We have one in Dubai that's focused on a very Middle Eastern specific real estate problem. And we have one in Nigeria that's, it's really cool, but my LPs are like, how the heck did you invest in a Nigerian fintech company? And is it real? <clears throat> but they're a great team. Um, but I tend to think like money is global, but like people's relationship to money and the products that they'll use tends to be local. So we are always looking at global fintech companies. I mean, like, I'll give you one example. I've met like four or five companies that are like, we're going to be the plaid of the Middle East. I think it's an interesting problem. I'm not sure that plaid won't be the plaid of the Middle East. I don't know. Like, so for some of these regional things, like I'm always asking myself, is this a regional company with global ambitions or is this a company that's going to build sort of a really reasonable, useful piece of regional technology that maybe becomes a part of somebody else's portfolio if they're successful? Different strategies and different things to focus on depending on where you land. Yeah. And, you know, you, uh, I'm dating myself a little bit, but a long time ago, you wrote a blog post, maybe a few blog posts on uh, competing with LinkedIn. Um, yeah. How have you sort of looked at that space uh, over time or what could disrupt something like that uh, today? I continue to lose money on that thesis. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but now I think we're finally going to crack it. I, I think what I didn't really appreciate at the time, and I think I wrote that, I wrote that blog post a while ago. I should start yeah. writing again. I stopped. The thing I didn't realize is that like most people, are kind of one and done with LinkedIn. They're like, this is the place where my professional stuff lives. It's largely a directory and I'm okay with that. And I don't think anyone has yet built, to your point about a horizontal or vertical, we have a couple of companies in our portfolio that I think will become vertical professional social networks of record, but they're not in the LinkedIn use cases. We have one in nursing and we have one in, one in the restaurant space and we've got another one in, in the sales one is probably most adjacent to LinkedIn. I just underestimated that like for a lot of people having one SEO friendly professional resume that they update every now and then is kind of enough. And that the real energy around that product is with recruiters, not consumers. It's a really difficult thing to unpack where you got people to do one, all everyone to do one thing once and you've got this network of recruiters that feed it, you'd have to kind of recreate the database and do something interesting to disrupt it. And I've seen a bunch of little piecemeal attempts, but nothing that I, I yet think is, um, the, I'm much more interested now in like funding companies I think that could compete with Facebook. Yeah. That's become a lot more fun. Yeah. And, and say, say more about that because you were saying you have to go places where they won't go. Is it like a privacy vector or data vector or like what, Um, how, how are people going to... Um, these are all targeting audiences that have made a conscious decision that that's not the product that they want and where their social network, the sort of the funny thing about network effects is like when you don't have them anymore, it changes the land. And these people was like their whole life is not on Facebook. So like they can afford it. So we have one company that's a private competitor to Facebook. It's focused on groups where for identity reasons and a bunch of other reasons, people don't want that part of themselves on Facebook. They like really want it separate and they're willing to pay for it. And another person is just like, there's an audience of people that we think are just not the Facebook generation. Like they don't plan to use that product in the same way and they're open to alternatives and we're going to give them what we think is a compelling alternative. Yeah. Super interesting. For people who are, you know, pitching you, what sort of traction or, or milestones, and of course, obviously it's case by case basis, but to the extent that your frameworks or what you look for, how do you think about that? And most people have zero when they meet us and that's kind of the goal. I realized like it's very easy as an investor to get fooled by early data. So I actually prefer companies that are 
that don't have anything. I think the analysis for me is like cleaner and simple. I don't have to figure out, you got 5,000 in MRR, but like, are these all your on-deck buddies that are using yeah. your product? Like, like what does this 5,000 MRR mean? And also like, if it's 5,000, that never gets bigger than 100,000. Does the 5,000 matter? So we will do companies that are post-launch and have traction. I probably say 50 to 60% of the stuff we do, it's pre-launch. Yeah. And do you, uh, do you do stuff where you're compelled by the entrepreneur, but you're not super yet compelled by the idea or barely? We, we've changed our, so when I started the fund, it was 60% founder, 40% market. Now it's 75% founder, 25% market. Yeah. Mostly because I realized I said no to some people that I really liked and I didn't know as much about their market. So now we have the, like, I have to not hate your market thesis. It's like the way we think about it. So it can't be a market where I have really strong negative opinions about it. I have to be neutral to positive on it. And then we'll say yes. And it's been a much better way to invest. Totally. With just a few minutes remaining, is there anything that, uh, anything else noteworthy you feel you've ch- changed your mind on um, in terms of sort of uh, evaluating markets or sort of pre, you know, pre-company stage or any frameworks in your, in your head that we haven't yet got to in this call? We probably do more solo founded companies than uh-huh. most VC firms do. And the big aha I've had is that so this summer, my intern is doing a project on the founder retention across stage in our portfolio oh. uh, to figure out, like, it turns out a lot of companies drop co-founders along the way, unfortunately. Yeah. What I realized is when you have a solo founder, you have all of these points on the cap table that you can allocate to early people that are gone if two individuals own 80% and have to sort of jointly decide. And I think paradoxically, the biggest problem I found is if you have a technical co-founder who's not going to eventually be the CTO or VP of engineering or chief architect of the company, but it's just a really solid engineer, a company that doesn't have that has a lot more equity to give out to really talented engineers and can make top of market offers in terms of equity. That's hard to do when you've already got 40 or 45 points tied up in your co-founder who's probably a really strong engineer, but maybe won't get you all the way there. And I also find like good solo founders who are, you know, doing it for the right reason are generally like more eager to add in more people to help them earlier because they, they feel the weight of doing it all on their own. So we, we've had like some of our strongest companies where we're solo founder enterprises. And um, that was a really not, that was like the opposite of what I've always been taught as a VC. That's awesome. I think it's a good place to, to wrap, uh, if if uh, if and when people are here are fundraising, uh, definitely consider uh, Charles and Precursor. They're an awesome firm. If if he, if they can't uh, take a meeting, don't feel too bad because they have to meet with three thousand companies, and it's and it's just Charles, and he's also uh, fundraising and so and you know running a firm is is hard. But uh, we're excited for uh, for us to do more more together. Charles, we're so grateful for you for taking. Thank the you time. for having me. This was really fun. Thank you, and good luck to everybody. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.